Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor, joined today by Hattie Williams, Senior Reporter, and Madeline Davies, Deputy News and Features Editor. On this week's podcast, we talk about Billy Graham, the American evangelist who died on Wednesday at the age of 99. And we look at falling numbers in residential training, and we look at the prevalence of narcissistic personality disorders in churches. Don't forget, if you don't subscribe to the Church Times, you can get 10 issues for £10 by visiting churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. First, as we were going to press on Wednesday, the news was announced that Dr. Billy Graham, the famous American evangelist and preacher, had died at the age of 99. In this week's paper, we run a news story and an extensive obituary of Dr. Graham, and we've updated those stories on our website. Hattie, you've been following the story. What, what was the initial reaction to Billy Graham's death? I think his position as um, what many people say is one of the most influential religious figures of the 20th century was really compounded by some of those reactions that came in and also the, the kind of speed which they came in and hugely uh, complimentary, some uh, obviously expressing sadness, but a great amount of joy for some of the things that he did. Um, so initially, the Archbishop of Canterbury was very mm. quick in issuing his response. He said that uh, Dr Billy Graham stood out as an exemplar to a generation upon generation of modern Christians. He said when it comes to a living and lasting influence upon the worldwide church, he can have few equals. And the Archbishop of York um, also, I think, knew Billy Graham, or had met him a few times, and then he had something to say as well. That's right. I mean, he was one of um, a number of people who actually mentioned Dr Graham's involvement with the civil rights movement in America um, and his influence there. A lot of people said, um, although he was initially sort of ambivalent about the movement, uh, Dr Graham, that is, he became more involved later on. And he was a great advocate of integrated uh, rallies. So in his reaction to the news, uh, Dr Santamu said, a good friend of Dr Martin Luther King Jr., Billy Graham preached, Jesus was not a white man. He was not a black man. He came from that part of the world that touches Africa and Asia and Europe. Christianity is not a white man's religion. And don't anybody ever tell you that it's white or black. Christ belongs to all people. He belongs to the whole world. I suppose that was quite radical in 1950s America to be um, taking that approach. I've seen other people say that um, Billy Graham didn't speak up enough about social issues or the role of you know legislation and, and political activism in, in bringing equal, equal rights to America. No, but you do wonder how much influence he had. I mean, there was a lot of... The obituaries obviously reference his relationship with US presidents um, Mm. being a kind of spiritual advisor, as it were. And you wonder perhaps whether he touched on some of those topics, perhaps in those meetings, you just don't know. I think I was reading that he um, actually encouraged um, LBJ to um, enforce um, integrated schools. Um, Obviously, the military were used in the end to enforce that. And um, from what I read, he was kind of supportive and even urged on that strategy. So did encourage an enforcement of the law once it had been passed. And he did have extraordinary access and influence, didn't he? I mean, we ran, been looking through our archive, one was Hans Better Nutsch's authorised biography of Billy Graham and his wife, Ruth Graham, where he, he talks about Billy Graham's very close relationship, particularly with Richard Nixon, which was the most controversial, but also a, a quote from George Bush Sr. Every president is driven to their knees by the demands of the job, but sometimes even that is not enough. No matter how deep one's faith is, sometimes you need the guidance and comfort of a living, breathing human being. For me and for so many other Oval Office occupants, that person was Billy Graham. When my soul was troubled, it was Billy I reached out to for advice, for comfort, for prayer. 
So it's a real pastoral role with presence of the United States, but it sounds like able to wield some political influence behind the scenes. Yeah, and I think um, there are questions now about who might play that role. So people have said, you know, he was the pastor to America. Um, and I guess there'll be questions now about who's going to inherit that mantle. And, um, you know, obviously we know now that um, Donald Trump, current president, has this um, Council of Evangelical Advisers, which has been enormously controversial um, in a way that Billy Graham's advice perhaps was not. You know, we know that Jim Wallace was um, an advisor to Bill Clinton um, mm. and that relationship. So I guess um, we're reflecting as well on the changing relationship between um, religious leaders and presidents and how that might look very different today. Another interesting thing is the quite close friendship that Billy Graham had with the Queen. Yes, so he actually met the Queen and also the Queen Mother on one of his early visits to the UK. He was actually depicted in uh, the Netflix television series The Crown in one of the episodes. He actually, they dramatised his meeting with the Queen, who is quite taken by him and has actually asked for a personal meeting, just one-on-one, who had seen him preach to crowds at Haringey on the television. It's well known that the Queen has a very deep personal faith. The idea was that she was um, incredibly inspired. And I think another thing the Crown picks up, which I think was was true to how it was at the time, was the suspicion of this kind of religious enthusiasm, which didn't seem very Church of England or Anglican, um, and the the surprise um, to, to see this kind of very simple, powerful message and people responding at the end. I mean, that's in David Winter, Canon David Winter, who writes for us regularly. He wrote for us in 2007 about how he was there on the night at the famous Haringey Crusade, or one of the famous Haringey Crusades in March 1954. Yeah, and he expresses the surprise that you know, when Billy Graham said, get up from your seat and come forward, and he says no one he was with expected anyone to move. You know, After all, this was Britain, not North Carolina, yet several hundred did that night, and hundreds more every night for eight weeks until the final rally in Wembley Stadium. We've had quite a few bishops and people tweeting, haven't we, that Billy Graham had a huge influence on their faith. Um, I saw Graham Tomlin tweet that he was at Wembley in 1966 to see Billy Graham, although he, he confessed that he was rather more interested in the in being at Wembley than seeing the evangelist, but then he was only seven. I've been really struck as well by um, the range of traditions of people that were at rallies. So um, on social media, um, it's not just evangelical priests who said, I went to a rally or um, mm. I went forward. People who maybe have changed over time and now would identify with quite a different tradition have still said, you know, yes, um, I was there and yes, it, it did have an impact on me, even if, you know, today they might um, have a slightly different um, churchmanship. I think one of the legacies in this country and in the Church of England of um, Billy Graham will be the confidence and presence of evangelicals in the Church of England. John Capon wrote for us in 2014, 60 years on from Billy Graham's crusade, as it was called, at Wembley Stadium. The most notable outcome for the Church of England was the part played by the crusade in the evangelical renaissance of the second half of the 20th century. Many people then would have been amazed to note that three of the past five archbishops of Canterbury have been evangelicals. Next, the latest numbers available on residential training for ordination show that there were fewer candidates in residential training in 2017 compared with 2016. Madeline, you've been digging around on this. What have you found? Yeah, so this is the um, annual report from the Ministry Division um, on ordinary training. Um, and it shows that there's been um, an almost 9% um, fall in the number of candidates who are in residential training. Um, and that's despite the fact that overall there are actually 14% more ordinance. 
Um, and this is something that we've been following because when changes to the way that um, training is funding were announced, um, several of the principals of theological educational institutes raised concerns and did predict that this might be one of the outcomes. Um, they suggested that, um, that that changes to funding would result in this drop in training in residential institutions. And so some of them have been taking this as a kind of indication um, of their warnings, including the principal of St Stephen's House, um, Canon Robin Ward. Um, he said to me, um, you know, we were told that we were naysayers for raising those concerns, but, you know, this is exactly what's happened. I think, you know, it's the first year that these reforms have been introduced, and so um, others are suggesting it's a bit too early to um, sort of confidently pronounce on a trend. Um, they include the principal of Trinity College in Bristol, um, Dr Innocen. It's notable that at Trinity they've actually had their highest ever intake um, across their pathways, and that includes a rise in younger candidates, um, including younger women which you know she's really pleased about but she does also say that she hopes that people who are older will be able to train residentially and it's really in those older age groups that you're seeing that fall. Do we know what's causing that fall in the older age groups? I mean there's there's different funding allocated depending on the age of the candidate um, so the most money um, that we're given to a diocese is for um, younger so um, under 32 you get more money um, to train um, as you get older um, fewer um, fewer money is allocated um, so ministry division has been very careful to say that they don't think that the um, changes in in training pathways are to do with money um, obviously other people will argue that you know it can be attributed to that Finally, principles of, of residential colleges trying to make the case for residential training with even more force. I mean, sensing with a lot of the context-based training schemes. That yeah, I saw the there was a there was a recent um, blog by the principal of um, Ridley Hall mm. who was arguing you know, seven reasons, um, you know, in favour of residential training and why it's important. Um, I was really inter- interested in something which um, the principal of Westcott House um, said to me um, this week. He was saying that um, a really large number of, of the ordinands aren't actually cradle Christians. So he was saying that you know, when he trained, um, he'd been brought up um, the son of a priest, he'd been a cathedral chorister, and, and basically Christianity was in his DNA, um, the life of the church was something he was very familiar with. And he said that um, I think most ordinands now that um, are at Westcott um, didn't grow up um, in the church and he feels really strongly that they they need time and space for formation not just training but formation um, training and discipleship Um, that he's quite worried about um, a potential drop in residential training because he just worries about people not having that time um, to be formed as priests. This is Canon Chris Chivers. Um, uh, he's in, quoted in your, your story on page seven of this week's issue saying, I'm wondering what is happening to the language of vocation and formation. Are we ditching it by stealth and moving to the point where we think this is simply a job? That's quite strong words. Yeah, so I think there are wider concerns um, beyond just these numbers, really around how do we conceive of formation. Um, and yeah, one of his concerns is that if we focus too much on the language um, of kind of skills and competencies, which he acknowledges are important, we can miss the bigger question, which um, he says is, you know, as I was saying, formation, um, being formed into a priest. But are there some who would say, Well, they would say that at residential colleges and with resources being as stretched as they are, isn't it perhaps something of an indulgence to spend two or three years away in in, in the cloisters and the comfortable surroundings of Cambridge or Durham or Oxford? 
I think the Ministry Division's argument is, you know, it's dioceses that make the decision about where people train. They're confident that those dioceses are not making the decisions based on money, they're making it based on the candidate in front of them and the pathway that they think is most appropriate. Obviously, this is all taking place against a backdrop of many dioceses facing financial pressures. And so I think what some of the principals are concerned about is that it's very hard to make those decisions and not in some way be influenced by those kind of financial constraints. One of the interesting findings is that actually when it comes to training, many dioceses are in surplus. So they're given this um, money from the central church. Um, and it seems that uh, many of them haven't actually spent it all on training. Um, I think so there are questions about um, what happens to that money. It's not ring fenced just for training. Yeah, so um, the Ministry Division has actually said that it's going to write to diocese to encourage them to, to spend all of their allocation. And principal of, of Westcott House, um, you know, was saying, you know, they can't really be coerced necessarily to do that. But if people are giving, I mean, parishioners are giving money on the understanding that um, it will at least in part go towards training. It's a bit concerning if it's not been spent um, for the reasons it was given, particularly if, for example, older people aren't being recommended for residential training. You know, there has been a 28% drop in older lands over 40 at Westcott House. Then, um, you know, could that money have been used to enable more to, to enjoy those, those three years at a residential college? Next, in this week's features section, Mark Vernon offers advice about how to recognise narcissistic personality disorder. Um, Manny, can you tell us a bit more about how this feature came about? Yeah, so we noticed that there were a number of books um, which were exploring basically toxic personality types, often kind of offering advice to people on on how to recognise those people um, and how to deal with them. Um, And some of them sort of specifically looking at that um, in a church context. One really kind of alarming finding came from a study of um, Protestant leaders in Canada, um, which suggested that around 30% of ministers um, met the diagnostic requirements for a narcissistic personality disorder. 30%? Yeah. Um, That appears um, in a book called Let Us Pray, The Plague of Narcissist Pastors and What We Can Do About It um, by Glenn Ball and Daryl Poles. Pray, um, P-R-E-Y. Yes, um, and that's one of three books um, which Dr Vernon looks at in this feature. And I mean, um, Mark Vernon's very well qualified to write on this, isn't he? As a, I mean, he's a former priest and he's also a practising psychotherapist. Yeah, so he um, actually specialises in personality disorders um, and works at the Maudsley Hospital in South London. Um, so I- ideal candidate to write this piece. Mm. And I mean, what are some of the signs of, of this personality disorder uh, that people might want to look out for? So the clinical definition which Dr Vernon provides um, is that someone who has a narcissistic personality disorder has a personality which works to maintain self-esteem by gaining affirmation from outside of themselves and to expel from within themselves what they cannot tolerate about themselves. And it's classed a disorder because that kind of profoundly and routinely affects their capacity to form relationships. And how does this manifest itself? So one of the examples um, given in the feature is that some might kind of try to create a reality in which they are loved or adored. And Dr. Vernon gives the example of a kind of Twitter-hungry politician who might fall into that category. Another might be people who try to charm those who surround them um, and kind of need people to feed love to them. Um, and he gives the example of a kind of a waspish comedian who might be suffering in that way. And then there's a third type he talks about which regard themselves as perpetual failures um, who kind of feel that kind of nothing will will satisfy them they'll never feel good enough i think one of the really interesting aspects of the feature is that although it emphasizes how dangerous these people can be and 
real harm that they can um, do to relationships and to people in their communities. Um, there's also kind of an empathy there and one of the things which um, the book suggests is you can um, at least understand um, where this behaviour comes from or from, from quite a sad and quite a dark place. That obviously doesn't justify the behaviour and doesn't mean that you don't need to have boundaries but um, there is a suggestion that if you can at least understand the causes perhaps some kind of empathy or forgiveness might be possible. And he writes that setting boundaries in a church context is quite difficult because churches are often places that you know people think should be empathetic, inclusive, tolerant. Yeah, exactly. So um, it talks about the difficulty of deploying some of the strategies that are recommend, uh, recommended for a secular environment in the church, um, where perhaps we have different ideas about tolerance or about inclusion. And also suggests that you know some of the methods that are used in disciplinary disciplinary kind of settings might not actually work. So, you know, an archdeacon might demand a public apology for harsh words, but that kind of focuses on the symptoms of the disorder. It doesn't recognise the causes of that behaviour. And so there's nothing to stop that from happening again. So I think one of the real kind of clarion calls in the piece is the church needs to recognise that this exists, that, that some priests and indeed some parishioners will be affected by it. Um, and that if we can at least kind of acknowledge what's happening um, perhaps our strategies will be better. I hope that the piece is helpful for people who might have come across this kind of person and perhaps have wondered you know am I being oversensitive am I mad you know I think it can be helpful to read these kind of diagnoses and think about you know does this actually explain some of the behaviour that I've, I've come across. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. (laughs) 